And so, um, first part, we're going to look at the Jerusalem church. And these guys are nuts. You know, can, you, can you imagine? This is a couple of months after Jesus' death. And uh, the first church, this group of about 5,000 people in, um, in, in Jerusalem, and these are peasants. They're, they're unschooled peasants, you know, and they're not rich people, and they get together, and they're bound together by that one spirit, by that one sense of following Jesus Christ, and they look at one another, and they say, there will not be a, a needy person among us. We will take care of one another. What's wrong with them? I mean, how can you do that in a group of 5,000 people? And in case you're wondering if this is just kind of like a fad, something that they try to experiment with for a couple of minutes and then quietly swept under the rug, next slide. It's not, because in every consistent description of the Jerusalem church that you find in Acts, in Acts 2 and Acts 11, you've got the same picture being shown to you. Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. I'll just read 44 and 45. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The Jerusalem church in Acts 2. And then in Acts 11, there's a description not of the Jerusalem church, but of the Antioch church, 300 kilometers up north. And there's going to be a great famine coming, and what do they do? Acts 11, verse 27 to 30, I'm reading from verse 28. There would be a great famine all over the world, and so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, to the other church in Judea. So this is not a one-off thing. This is not a, a weird thing. This wasn't a fad that they did for some time. This was their ethos. This is the way that they lived. Next slide. Consistently taking care of one another's needs. And before we get really frightened about it, you know, I want you to notice three things about what these guys did. The first thing is that th this was not compulsory. This is not a, a rule. This is not something that every individual that came into the church had to do. They were not required to sign on the form and sell their property and give the money. They were not. And we know this because of a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is because of the tense, the language with which it is described in Greek. It's described in the uh, in the indefinite tense, which basically means it happened repeatedly over and over again, every now and then, once in a while, when a need arose. And so when they needed it, they sold their, their, they sold their property in order to provide for the needs. And there's another better reason why we know that it's not compulsory, and that is what Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira a couple of verses down the line, and we'll look at it in a while. So one, it wasn't compulsory. Next slide. It wasn't giving to full-time workers. It wasn't the church coming together, giving all their money so that their pastor could buy a penthouse in, you know, Sentosa Cove or something like that. This was giving to one another. This was giving to Acts chapter 4, verse 34. This was giving to each other as any had need. And the question is, who are these guys? You know, wh wh who are these people who have the needs? And we find a better description of this in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that describes some conflict about where the money is distributed. And it turns out that they're distributing it to the widows. But who are these widows, the needy people? Why are they all here in, in the uh, Jerusalem church? Next slide. And the answer is because you've got to remember that this is the... Uh, Okay, I can't reach over there, but I want you to kind of imagine the bot on the top on the bottom right over there. You can see Palestine and Jerusalem, and this is where the uh, the Jerusalem church is. This is where um, this church is, 
And at this point in the first century, the entire ancient Near East is ruled by the Roman Empire, and many of the Jews are basically distributed around the ancient Near East, but for all of them, Jerusalem remains the focal point of their religion. It's their homeland, it is their holy capital, it's sacred ground. And so what happens is many of them, when they're old, when they're about to die, they choose to come back to Jerusalem and die there in order to be buried there. Do you remember the story of um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the one who donated his tomb to Jesus' burial? He's a businessman, Why on, and he's from Arimathea. Why on earth does he have a tomb in Jerusalem to donate to uh, Jesus' burial? Reason? Because he wishes to be buried there, just like so many other Jews were. And so what this means is that Jerusalem became the center, the focal point, where many people converge near the end of their lives and sometimes they'd come from hundreds, thousands of kilometers away, come back, and there's, they have no family. Maybe it's just the man and, and, her, and, his, and his wife. And one of them dies, and one of them is left behind. And they're poor, and they're landless, and they can't work, and they don't have family. And some of them have joined the Jerusalem church. But within the church, they will not have any need because they know that they'll be taken care of. They know that they'll be taken care of. Next slide. And so that's, it's not to full-time workers. It's to each other. It's to those who have needs. And finally, this is not tithing. You know, there, there's so much talk about tithing and, you know, how much we're supposed to give, how much we're not supposed to give. Now, I, I'm not against tithing, so you know, let's, let's, let's kind of get that off the table. But if you went to this church and you, if you walked in and said, hey, you guys, do you give 10% of your income to... God's work, they wouldn't understand what you asked because it would be 10%. I didn't give 10%, but I saw this woman who was in need, and so I, hold my I sold my house and I gave so that she would never hunger again. That's what I gave. I didn't give 10%. This isn't tithing, and it makes our talk about tithing and our anxiety about tithing shrivel up in comparison to this. Next slide. And so these guys were doing it without, without being compelled to do it. It wasn't compulsory. It wasn't a rule. They were giving to each other. It wasn't tithing. But why? Why were they doing this? What, what, what was it in their hearts that made them give and behave like this? Next slide. And the answer you find right in the very first verse. Those who believed were all of one heart and of one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And because of this, there was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine what these guys were like? They looked at one another within the Jerusalem church, and they felt so at one with each other that they couldn't say, this is my stuff, that's your, your need, not my problem. When they saw anyone with need, their need was th their need and they met it. And that's what's amazing about these guys. Next slide. And so that's the first picture that we get in terms of what is the church supposed to look like? What do we see within the Jerusalem church? And it's a sense of radical unity. And that's scary. Next slide. So that's the first thing, unity. Now we're going to look at Barnabas for a while. Is Barnabas here, by the way, Barnabas Tan? Nope. Ah, oh, this is a pity. Okay, next slide. 
Great, then I can talk about him later. All right, so uh, this is um, from verse 46 to 30, first 36 to 37, the story of Barnabas. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Barnabas because David Yap spoke about it in detail last week. So if, you're, if you weren't here, you know, go and listen to that sermon. But note what Barnabas did. Now, Luke has described what the Jerusalem church did in terms of their sharing among each other. And now there's the example of Barnabas. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so I'm not going to describe this in detail, but it's very clear what happened. Here's this guy, Barnabas, who's got land, who's got field, and whether it's on Cyprus or whether it's in Palestine, we don't know, and he sells it, and he gets revenue from it, and he looks at that revenue, and when he decides what to do with it, um, it looks like at this time there is needs within the Jerusalem church, and he looks at what he has and says, I, I, I don't need this. Those guys need it, and, and so I'll, I'll give it to them. Next slide. And so that's an expression of what the Acts Church looked like in, in Barnabas's heart. And it's this inconceivable generosity. Next slide. Do you know people like this? Um, I do. S some of the most generous people that I know are, are here. But, but I'm not going to talk about you guys because I don't want to embarrass you. But Rebecca isn't here, so I can't embarrass her. So I'll talk about her. Um, this is Rebecca Wu, by the way. You guys remember her, right? You know, she was working as a missionary in China for a couple of years. And you won't believe what she did to me. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I, I just started work, and I was looking at what I could do with, with my income, and I decided that I would really like to support her work in China because I, I trust her, and I, and, I, and, and, I, and I know that what she's doing is good stuff. And so I, I spoke to her, and I said, okay, Rebecca, there's this much money that I have to give away, and I'd like to give it to you. And Rebecca says, okay, I'll pray, for, I'll pray about it. And then she prays about it. And then she comes back and then she tells me, you know what, Raj, um, thank you for your offer. But right now my needs are met. I, I don't need this. But there's this other missionary that I'm working with who's got greater needs than me and who's struggling. I would like you to give the money meant to me, meant for me to her. Would you do this for me? And how could I say no? And, you know, I was feeling quite good about myself when I offered, you know, to be so generous to Rebecca. And then she goes and does this. And then I realized that my generosity is like, <laughs> you know. And, and that totally humbled me. And she will remain a hero in my eyes for so many reasons. And, and this is one of those reasons. Uh, okay, by the way, don't tell her that I told you this story. Okay. <laughs> All right, next slide. So that's generosity. And then, okay, finally we're getting to the really tricky bit, right? Um, Ananias and Sapphira and what they did. And so th this is the hard story. And um, so what happened? So Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, just like Barnabas, they sell a piece of property and then they bring a part of it and give it to Peter and appear to represent themselves, appear to pretend as, as if that they're giving all of it. And that's when Peter discerns by the Holy Spirit what they've done and he pronounces judgment upon them that you have lied. Not to man, you have lied to the church, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And because of that, Ananias dies. And great fear comes upon the church and they bury him. And then Sapphira, his wife, comes in, you know, blur. And they tell, and, they, and Peter asks her, did you 
sell it for this much? He asks her directly, and she lies in his face. Yep, that's exactly how much we got for it. We're donating all of our proceeds. And just like Ananias, the spirit comes and she drops dead and fear comes around, comes upon the rest of the church. Next slide. Um, and this is a scary text for us to look at. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but the biggest questions that come to my mind when I look at this is, what was their sin? What did they do that are so bad that, you know, deserved their punishment immediate, direct, fatal, no second chances, punishment like this. There are other people within the book of Acts who also committed, you know, some sins or the other. Or the other. Simon the sorcerer attempted to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. He was warned. He was rebuked. He wasn't, he wasn't killed directly, but these guys were. What, what was their sin? And the second big question is them being, you know, given that the, whatever their sin was, why would you punish them so severely? And we're going to look at these one by one. Next slide. So what is their sin? And an immediate answer, an easy answer, okay, not an easy answer, a very painful answer would be they, their sin was that they didn't give all of their possessions to the church. And therefore, if you are all not selling your stuff and giving to the church, then you know, you're in, in danger of dropping dead. You know? That would be a terrible interpretation to give for this. And there's a good reason for that, and that's the words that Peter pronounces to Ananias and Sapphira. Note what Peter says. Why have you contrived this? Why have you done this in your heart? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And to make clear that they were not under any obligation to sell what they had and give to the church, to make it clear that it is not a general rule that everybody is supposed to comply with, he says, while it remained unsold, while it was still your property, was it not yours? Did it not remain your own? You didn't have to sell this. You didn't have to give this to the church. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have done anything you wanted to do with that money. You were not under any obligation to give to the church or to the needy or to anything. It wasn't what you were required to do. And yet, you lied, not to man, but to God. And their lying was about their degree of sacrifice, about how much they had actually given, how much they had spent themselves in order to give to God, give to church, give to people who are needy. But why would they do that? Why would they try and deceive people like this? And from the flow of the narrative, it looks like basically they saw Barnabas. Wow, Barnabas gives and he's got such a great name. His name is Joseph and they call him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Everybody likes Barnabas. It would be great if everybody liked us as well. And even though we can't, we don't have it in our hearts to do enough so that everybody will like us, we'll pretend, we'll, we'll lie, you know, we'll pretend we're giving so much and maybe they'll give us a, a nice name as well, Barnabasi or something. They lie and they're struck dead because they lied about their degree of sacrifice. Next slide. Um, note that the way that they lied, there were two ways. Ananias, he didn't say anything. He came and he left it at the apostles' feet. Nothing. He didn't lie explicitly, but he, by his actions, he was trying to convey a sense of sacrifice and piety that didn't exist. And for that, he was called lying. Not for lying explicitly, but for lying in his actions. And he was struck dead. And then there's Sapphira, who was asked 
Is this all? And she lied explicitly, and she's drug dead to next slide. Does this happen? Do, do we do this? Do we? Do we lie about our degree of sacrifice and our degree of piety, how holy we are with each other within church? Um, does this happen? And, and, I've, and I've been thinking about this, and um, I've seen it happen, and, and it happens. And one of the places that I see it happen, and it bothers me, not, not explicit lying, not you know, going out and saying that you've sacrificed things that you haven't, but trying to communicate that you have. Next slide. One of the places that we see this is in, is in missions, and that's where I've seen it most. Because there are some of us, you know, you guys know that I've been involved in missions for 12 years now. We go out, we do stuff, and then we come back. And we, when we come back, we're asked to tell stories, and we tell the stories, and the church loves it, and we are given these strokes, and it feels great, you know, when there's, you know, aunties coming, oh, Raj, you know, oh, you're such a good boy, you've sacrificed so much, you know, and, and, and deep inside, it's delightful, and, and it feeds this little monster in me that goes, yes, praise me, kind of acknowledge how much I've, I've sacrificed and given, and sometimes it actually isn't that much. You know, I, I go on missions, you know, couple of times a year, I come back having lost a couple of kgs. It's not because I didn't have anything to eat. It's because I, you know, I, I wasn't exercising or something or I was sick or something. The sacrifices that we make sometimes aren't that much, but within the church, it's tempting. I'm tempted to, to communicate a certain amount of sacrifice because we are reinforced, we're stroked for it, we're rewarded for it. And I'm so sorry that that happens. And, and what I ask of you guys is don't, don't let that happen. Please don't, don't let that happen to me. Those of you who are in missions, you've seen this. You know, you know that it happens. Um, don't let it happen to me. You know, when I'm telling you my mission stories or, or whatever, ask about the people that we serve. Ask about their stories. Don't, don't ask about us. Don't, don't focus on us, the people that go. Next slide. Um, another area in which we, I think we, misrepresent our, our holiness, our degree of sacrifice, is the kind of songs that we sing. We are nuts. Have you guys looked at the lyrics of some of the things that we sing? You know, sometimes I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in worship and I sing something like this, and then I, I stop and there's this little voice in my ear that goes, are you crazy? Even Mother Teresa cannot sing like this. What? You know, all my, you know, all that I am, all that I have, I lay them down before you, my God. I offer my life to you. Are you crazy? Have you actually done this stuff? I haven't. And when I sing this song, as if it is true, as if I have really laid down my all for God, and if I sing it, trying to communicate this to the rest of the church or the people who aren't believers, I lie. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't sing stuff like this. You know, th th those of you who are leading worship, you know, carry on. But when we sing, at least implicitly, there should be the recognition that this is something we want to be. This is something we'd like to be like. And at least in your heart, you should be singing, you know, Lord, I want to be able to lay down my life for you. And maybe I don't yet, but I want this. I want this. And when we sing that way, it's true. And that's the way we should sing. Next slide. 
why were they punished so severely? You know, if they did lie, if they did mercy represent themselves, why were they punished with death? This particular type of judgment doesn't happen throughout the New Testament, doesn't happen every time a believer sins, but it happens sometimes. And one clue as to why it happens here in the Jerusalem church, you find in the specific word that is used to describe the sin that Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira committed, the sin of taking, keeping, that particular word that is used to depict their taking and keeping for themselves, nosfizo, it's that same Greek word is used to describe something else that happened once in another part of the Bible, and that is in Joshua. Next slide. About how, remember the sin of, sin of, of um, Achan or you know, Achan? where this is after the transition from Moses to Joshua. Joshua is the, the leader of, the, of, of Israel. And now they're about to go into battle, and they've been told what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. And again, just like in the New Testament church, the sin of, of greed, of avarice, of wanting to keep something for yourself, shows up in Achan or Achan. And what does he do? He takes some of that stuff. But the people of Israel broke faith regarding the devoted things for Akan took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burnt against the people of Israel. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble upon us? The Lord will bring trouble upon you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones and they burnt him with fire and stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. And so once again, at a key point within the history of the people of God, you know, when they've been reconstituted, when they're together, when they're at a turning point, when they're at a key moment, it becomes very clear that greed, selfishness, breaking faith with God, that's punishable. Next slide. And what is the result of this? What is the result of this in Israel? What is the result of this within the New Testament church when it happened? Twice we are told what happens as a result of the punishment of Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts 5, verse 5, and a great fear came upon all who heard it. And Acts 5, 10, 11, and a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It is right to be fearful of hypocrisy. It is right to be fearful of lying. It is right to be fearful of misrepresenting ourselves, of trying to appear more holy than we are. God help us. Next slide. And so what we see in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira is inauthenticity and that lesson for us, what is the church supposed to be like? It's supposed to be a place of authenticity where we are real with each other, where we don't feel a need to exaggerate how pious we are, how good we are, how much sacrifice we've made. Next slide. And so that's the... When we look at the hearts of the Jerusalem church, the heart of Barnabas and the heart of Ananias and Sapphira, and if we ask the question, what is the church supposed to be like? This is the picture that, that emerges, a church of unity where the need of everyone is your need, a generosity where you look at what you have and you look at the needs of others within the church and you find it easy to let go. And it's a church of authenticity where there isn't a need to pretend, there isn't a need to, you know, be holier than you really are. Next slide. So what do we do about this? How do we try and, you know, bring this to life here now? And that's a 
tough, tough question. You know, like, like I've said earlier, application isn't necessarily replication. There's so many things that are different between our time and theirs, and there's some things that we can't do. If, if Barnabas, okay, Barnabas is around, if Barnabas sold his house and he brought his money and he gave it to Pekchu and Rosalina, they'd tear their hair out. They wouldn't know what to do with it. You know, we, they're, they're, we're not looking at what they did, the exact actions, their exact systems, their exact procedures, and trying to replicate that and trying to do that within our church, but we're trying to look within their hearts. What was it that motivated them to live like this? And then ask, what is it like if our hearts take upon that same shape? What had happened here? And I don't know that answer, but I, I have a couple of guesses, and, and I'm going to give you three guesses as to what church would look like if that heart was formed within us. Next slide. Click. Click harder? Yes, okay, all right. So, um, and so that, that first thing is this. You know, I've said this so many times and I'll keep saying it. Join a cell group. I mean, there are some aspects of the Christian life that it is impossible to express on your own. It's just not possible. I'm going to be united to myself. I'm going to be generous with myself. I'm going to, you know, it doesn't work that way. There are some aspects of the Christian life that can find expression in no other place except for with other people. And the best place that I can think of for that to happen is within a, a cell group. So if you're not in one, get in one. Or if it's not a cell group within PPH, if it's a cell group at, at work or study or school or something, join a group because it's only within that group of Christians bound together by the Spirit of God that you'd be able to give expression to some of these things. Next slide. I didn't get all the cell group leaders' permission to do this, but I put up all the list of the cell groups and their phone numbers and their email addresses. I know you can't read this. The point is that there are lots of them. Uh, the best cell group is mine. So everybody knows this, so don't listen to Edwin. Uh, so uh, if you guys, you know, find out, you know, email Pekchu, the slides are online, you know, the information is online. Find out, find a group, fit in. You're welcome to join mine. Not all of you, though. Okay, next slide. My second guess as to what it's like when the heart of generosity is formed within us, and that's... Um, to meet one another's needs in the same way that it meant within the Acts Church. Now, fortunately, we are not a people who are living in Jerusalem in the first century. We don't have half of our congregation, people who have, you know, come from a long way away and who are now indigent, have got no money or family and needs. That isn't happening here, but there are other needs that we have among each other. And if we are to be the church of God and if we are to be expressing what it's like to be the church of God, there must be that meeting of needs within one another. And the best place that I can think of where that can happen would be your cell group. I don't know most of you guys. I don't know the names of... You know how it's weird? We always sit in the same places. Have you noticed that? Everybody knows this. Sometimes when I sit over here, everybody gets, you know, kind of weirded out. You know, what is going on? And he has a, had a fight with somebody on the other side. We don't know all of each other, but we can know a small group of people within your cell group, within your reference group. And those are the people whose needs you must meet because their needs are your needs. 
And that's what it's like for the heart of generosity to be formed in your heart. Maybe not selling your stuff, but meeting those needs. Next slide. And the, my guess as to what it means for us to be authentic with each other, the heart of authenticity to be formed in us, is to be real when we're talking about and expressing one another's testimonies and what it's like to follow God. Let's stop. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to misrepresent myself, to make myself out to be sacrificing a whole lot more than I actually am. And that's helped, that's reinforced by people who say stuff to me, you know, oh, Roger, so holy, all that. Don't, just don't, don't, don't. Let's not build that culture within our groups that allows people to create that inauthentic pretenses of themselves. Let's be real with one another. I know that one of the things that happens within my cell group is, you know, one, once in a while I, I, f I oversleep because I work too much and I don't make it to church. Yes, confession, it happens. Um, and uh, someone like Xiaomi would message me, hey, where are you? And we kind of have a, have a code language within us. When I've actually overslept and not made it to church, I tell, sometimes tell her, you know, the Lord led me to do other things. <laughs> you know, basically what it means is I overslept. And uh, sometimes, you know, when I want somebody to do something, you know, would you, would you lead the cell group on this day? And they'd be like, oh, I will pray and wait and see what the Lord wants me to do. And what that actually means is, no, don't want to do it. <laughs> and so we, we have these code words for these kind of things. And uh, I mean, that, that's okay as long as we know what we're talking about and we're doing it with a wink in our eye. But when we're speaking to outsiders, when we're speaking in that jargon to people who don't know, let's, let's be honest, let's be real with one another about what it means to be following God. Next slide. And so that's the, that's, I'm about near the end. Um, you remember when I said in the beginning that there's so many people who feel unsatisfied about church, that there's something missing, that something should be different, that we're, we're, we're not what we're supposed to be. I, I don't know if you feel that way, but I feel that way um, a lot of the time. But when we feel that way, when we feel that something's missing, something's not the way it's supposed to be, we need to be clear about what we are supposed to be. And when we want to draw that picture clearly in our minds, you know, what are we supposed to be? Let's draw from this. Let's draw from the scriptures. Let's draw from the examples that we have in of the Acts Church and say this is what it means. This is what church is supposed to be. Let's not fill the center of our view of what church is supposed to be like with pictures of, you know, oh, there's supposed to be, you know, better singing or, you know, worse or, you know, less air conditioning or, or the chairs are supposed to be better or the preacher is supposed to be, you know, less long-winded or, or whatever. These are not, these may be important things, but these are not the central things. When we want to draw the picture in our minds of what the church is supposed to be like, this should be at the center of that picture. Unity, generosity, authenticity. And if when you're dreaming of a church, of the church that you want to be, if you're dreaming of the church as the church should be, and these things are not at the center, that's not the church of God that you seek. Last slide. Next slide. And so we know that some things are different. Um... We're given this picture, and then we're asked to draw it again. And we don't have the same paint brushes. We don't have the same paint. We don't have the same canvas. We're in a different context. We're in the 21st century. We're in Singapore. Things are different economically, socially, 
size, everything, everything's different. And we know that. And I'm not saying that we need to replicate the Acts Church. But if we adopt their heart, and when we paint that picture, it'll be by the same author, it'll be by the same God. And if we do that right, our picture will look like the Acts Church's picture. And, and this is my dream. This is what I want. This is what I want here. I'm going to end. And what I want us to do is, I want us to, to just close, close our eyes for a minute. And, and I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm not going to pray for you. You can pray for yourself. I'm going to pray for, for the church, for our church, for, for PPH, for this community, for my cell group. I'm, I'm going to pray. And if you want this as well, if you want a church like this, I want you to stand up and, and join me in prayer. I want you to stand up now if you'll, if you'll join me in praying for this. If you want this church, if you want your cell group to be like this, if you seek a church of unity, if you seek a church of uh, authenticity, if you seek a church of generosity, would you stand with me now and would you pray with me? Would you stand with me now and would you pray with me? Would you stand with me now? Would you pray with me? God, we God, we look at the picture of your church within, within the scriptures and I'm pierced because it's so far from who I am, from, from what we are. And we want this. And we want this. God, the only way that's going to happen in us is the same way that it happened in your church by the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we ask, we ask of this. Holy Spirit, work in us. Holy Spirit, make this a true picture of your church. Holy Spirit, work. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The, the service is over. Thank you.